Um, we did something a little bit different today. We, we cut our, our, the front end of our worship service short a little bit. I don't know if maybe some of you even noticed that. But there's a reason. There's a rhyme and a reason. And here's the reason. We're just sensing that God wants to do something in this service after the preaching of his word. I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to convince us of some things that are going to cause us to take some action and that action is going to be our act of worship today. All right? So I'm just praying that God would just speak to us. Lord, we, we position our hearts today to hear from your word. Lord, we believe that your word is living and active because it is anointed by the spirit of truth that does a deep work in us as we sit under both the preaching and the reading and the meditation of your word. And so, God, would you take us on a journey today, and would you cause us, Lord, to be worshipers in our reception of that word, and, Lord, in our posturing of our hearts to allow you to change us, to renew us, to make us different, and by different, make us look more and more like Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name as our act of worship. And everyone said, amen. Well, last week we started a series, and the series is called Raw, When Hurt Leads to Hope. When Hurt Leads to Hope. And, and Pastor Lisa led us through Psalm 62, and she said something so profound. And I wanted to kind of just bring it back, because it really plays into where we're going today to some degree. She said, pain demands all of your attention. Pain, it demands all of your attention. But there's this grace that's extended to us, believers in Christ, that gives us the strength to not give in to the demands of pain, but to and stop looking down at pain and start looking up into the face of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. And these are the moments of grace that we want to explore. We want to explore through the Psalms, through this series, the shift between pain and hurt to hope and praise. And what does that shift and what does that grace look like? You might ask, why, why, why are we doing a series like this? And I've really been challenged, and you may have felt a theme over the years, particularly the last couple years. I've really been challenged with this. I believe that the Western church has a very weak and anemic theology of suffering. We do. I know we, we're not excited about this. But there's something powerful about having a theology of suffering. So you can understand how God can shape us and refine us and mold us, not just for our story, but for his story, not just for our kingdom, but for his kingdom, through the pain and the hurt of this broken world. He can redeem that, and there's a grace and there's a hope in that, and we want to explore that, because if we don't explore it, what happens is we have weak Christians, and we present this gospel that says, if you come to Jesus, everything's going to be okay, and then you get hit by the brokenness of this world. And you have these crises of faith. 
And I've seen too many of my friends and my brothers and my sisters walk away from their faith because they didn't understand their theology of suffering and how God can redeem it and use it and shape us. There's something to, to be celebrated in suffering. That's why James says, take joy when you face persecution and suffering and pain. Because there's something redeeming about it in the life of the believer. Sorry, we're just going to get into it. Is that okay, friends? Can we just get into it? The time is short. The time is short. Let's just get into it. There's a shift that happens when we recognize God's presence in the midst of the seasons of suffering and pain. There's a shift that happens. There's a grace that's extended. And today, we're going to explore a brutally raw, messed up moment in the life of King David. And David wrote the psalm that we're about to dig into. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. But I want to give you a, a bit of a background story to what happened just previous to him writing this psalm in Psalm 51. It's a story of lust and adultery, murder and cover-up. It's not David's finest hour. And listen, friends, if pain demands all of our attention, then shame demands that we hide. If pain demands all of our attention, then shame, it demands that we hide. And both of these are raw realities of the human condition that keep us from God. But it doesn't have to be that way. And if you're taking notes, write this down. And if you're not taking notes, write this down. His mercy is greater than your worst moment. His mercy is greater than your worst moment. So, so let me give you some backstory. It's found in 2 Samuel 11. And, and David should be about the mission. King David, he should be about the mission. He should be out with his men on the battlefield. But instead, he sends his general Joab to, to lead his armies in the battle. And he stays back. And, and the word says that he was reclining on his couch. He was probably watching Netflix. And that moment came when Netflix asks, are you still watching? And you feel like a horrible human being. And, and so then he got up from his couch and he walked out onto his roof. And he's, he's looking out over his kingdom. Looking out over all that he has. All that he is ruler over. And he looks down and he sees, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I wouldn't bathe on my roof, but to each their own. He sees this woman bathing on her roof. And he lusts after her. Now this is problematic because then he sends his servants and he goes, who is that? And they tell him, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And he says, go, go bring her to me. And now all of a sudden, David, king, okay, abuses his power and he sleeps with Bathsheba. He abuses his power and he sleeps with her. Not too long after, she sends word to him that she's pregnant. What does shame do? Shame demands that we hide. This is where the cover-up begins. 
Shame, it demands cover-ups. Uh, I remember as a kid, I had a few moments of cover-up, and I have my piggy bank here today. This is actually in my office to kind of remind me of a few things from my childhood, a few lessons that I've learned the hard way. And my brother and I, we always shared a room. And so we had this like little uh, bookshelf just by our door, and our door went out, and right in front of us was a landing, and it was a stairs. And I remember I wanted to buy some candy because I was just, I have such a sweet tooth, people. It's not even funny. And so I picked up my piggy bank, but the problem was I was very horribly disciplined with my money. And so as I picked up my piggy bank, I gave it a stuffing. Then I thought, you know what, my brother, he's a, he's a, he saves everything, like to this day. So I picked up his piggy bank, and it was hefty, and it was full of coins. And I remember it was one of those piggy banks where you had to kind of remove a little bit of that bottom and had that little hole that was just big enough to kind of get some coins out of there, right? And so I remember I, I like, tried getting that screw, and I got it, like, halfway pried open. I'm shaking it. But all of a sudden, I heard the creaking of the stairs, and someone was coming up. And so I put that one down, and I quickly picked up mine. And my mom comes around the corner, and I covered it up just in time. And you know moms have superpowers? You know what I'm talking about? And so my mom said, hey, Lucas, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just trying to get some money out of my, my piggy bank. She said two simple words, because I was holding mine. She said, shake it. <laughs> but even as a kid, my default position when caught in what I knew was not right was to cover it up, to hide it, to try to hide. Friends, the default position of our human frailty when faced with shame is cover up. Think about the very first instinct of Adam and Eve. They, they eat of that, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're introduced to the knowledge of sin. They're introduced, and they realize that they're naked, and they're overcome with shame. And then God comes into the garden, and what do Adam and Eve do? What is their initial instinct? To hide. To hide. Their initial instinct is to hide. And since that day, humanity, when faced with shame, wants to hide, and wants to cover up. Oh, the amount of energy and time we spend in this life hiding. Each of us, the amount of energy and time we spend in this life hiding. Hiding our insecurities, hiding our shortcomings, hiding our brokenness, hiding our sin, hiding our pain. So David reaches out to his general, and he tells, he tells um, him to send Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come back home from the front line. And so he comes, and David's hope is that he'll use Uriah, he'll get an update from the front lines from Uriah, and then he'll send him home. And if you're a man, and you're away from war, and you're away from your wife a while, what's he hoping, right? And he's going to send him home. But Uriah, this is interesting, Uriah has more integrity than the king. Because Uriah says to him, surely 
with those men out there and me being the only one to come back to my city, I am not going to go home. I am in a season of war right now. I am a soldier. I'm not going to go home. And so he sleeps in the gate of the palace with the servants. David's cover-up isn't going very well. And then he tries again the next night. He tries to get him drunk. And Uriah leaves the king's presence, intoxicated, and he goes into the gate of the palace and he sleeps again there with the servants. So now David knows he's not going to be able to get this to happen. So what does he do? He sends Uriah with a sealed letter. And that letter was instructed to be given to General Joab. And so Uriah heads back to the front lines with his own death sentence in hand. The letter said this. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that may, he may be struck down and die. David murders Uriah, abuses his power. And following this, David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Shame if left unchecked and hidden, will always lead us to be the worst versions of ourselves. Always. Always. The worst versions of ourselves. So David thinks he's gotten away with this great sin, and, and then the sin of lust was spiraled into adultery and, and arguably abuse of power and rape, leading to murder and now this cover-up. But shame can be so arrogant Shame can tell us this story that we have the power to hide and to remain hidden. Yet God saw it all. Not only did God see it, but, but God goes to his prophet of that time, Nathan, and he reveals what happened to Nathan. And so Nathan, as the prophet of God, goes to the king and he tells him a story about a neighbor who took another neighbor's livestock. And the king gets very upset. Who is this that we might bring justice? And Nathan said, it is you, king. It is you. And his sin is revealed. His sin is brought into, into the light. And this is where we jump into Psalm 51. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 51. And as we read this psalm together, I pray that the Holy Spirit would begin to convince each of us that his mercy is greater than your worst moment. His mercy is greater than your worst moment. Read with me, starting verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Friends, his mercy is greater than your worst moments through repentance. 
through repentance. What, what is repentance? Biblically, repentance, it's more than just I'm sorry. It's a turning away from. It's an expelling of those patterns and those behaviors and those attitudes from your life. But it's also more than just that. It's also contrition. And, and contrition carries with it. And these are not words we often use. But we need to understand them, and that's why I use them. Contrition carries with it this idea that our sin and our brokenness doesn't just affect you. It often affects those that are close to you. It affects your neighbor. It affects your marriage. It affects your children. It affects your friendship. Contrition carries with it this idea that your sin is not in a vacuum, but it affects everyone around you. And contrition brings us to this place where we make moments of asking for forgiveness, but also bringing restitution. Restoring right relationship. But none of these things happen unless you come to terms with one big truth. You are a sinner. I'm a sinner. None of that happens unless you come to terms and come to grips with that truth. That each of us, as human beings, are sinners. And David admits this in two ways. He admits to the wrongdoings of his actions, but then he goes a step further in, in verse 5. If you notice, he goes a step further. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is talking about what we call the sin nature of the human being. That we're born into sin. That we are born as babies, as sinners, broken in need of a savior. This is our reality. And as I was writing this sermon, I, I kind of hesitated at this moment. And Pastor Marcus can tell you, I came out into the office and we were having a bit of a, a debrief here. Because we need to define a little bit what it means to be a sinner saved by grace. Because there's two extremes and we need to find the radical middle, as Gordon Fee would say. Here's one extreme. Sinner saved by grace. Oh, the worm that I am. I don't deserve your grace and your love. And I am worthless. And I'm going to trudge through this world and this faith journey with the burden of my worthlessness on my shoulders. But I thank him for his grace, but I have no value at all. Okay? It's one extreme. Here's, here's, we're going to jump over here to the other extreme. I am the entitled prince or princess of daddy God. And nothing's going to hurt me and he's going to give me anything that I want. And I'm just going to through this life Okay? Because I'm redeemed and I'm a son and I'm a daughter of God. Okay? We gotta, we gotta find a we gotta find a bit of a middle here. We gotta walk in a bit of a middle here. The radical middle, as Gordon Fee says. 
There's this middle ground which reminds us of our sinful nature in need of grace and mercy. But it's contrasted with our new reality as those who have been made sons and daughters of God. The middle ground that speaks to the value God speaks over us and created in us when he made us in his image. We are only valuable because God speaks worth over us. But we have worth because God speaks it. But that is contrasted with the reality that we are living in a season of time as a broken shadow of that original intention, still in need of a savior. This middle that we are children of our creator, but he is still the sovereign king ruling over us. But with all of that said, none of the beauty and reality of the gracious, merciful work of God can be experienced until you resign yourself to this simple truth. You are a sinner in need of a savior. You are a sinner in need of a savior. In fact, the renewal that we so desperately seek as believers won't come until our sin and brokenness are called out for what they are. Mark Sayers says in his book, Reappearing Church, as he paraphrases the words of Arthur Wallace, he says, sin must be discovered and exposed to the light of his coming. When this happens, it's time to cease excusing our sins by calling them shortcomings or natural weakness or by attributing them to temperament or environment. It's time to cease justifying our carnal ways and mere materialistic outlook by pointing to others who are the same. Friends, if we want to see renewal, we have to start calling brokenness and sin what it is. If you want to see renewal of the spirit in your life, you have to start looking at your life and calling brokenness and sin for what it is. And I believe God is raising up a few. I believe God is raising up a remnant who are going to walk in a season of that. Some of you are sitting here right now, and the Spirit is convincing you and has been convincing you and walking you in that journey. Verse 6, in many ways, is the very definition of what it what it takes to walk in spiritual revival and renewal. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David would later pray a prayer like this, and it's found in Psalm 139 that says the same thing, but with maybe a little more impact. He says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous or sinful way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This series is entitled Raw. And this is as raw as it gets. These moments in the presence of the spirit where we are confronted with this truth. That we have brokenness and sin in areas and deep dark places of our soul. You don't like it. 
I don't like it. It's painful. It's hard. It's hard to look in a mirror and be confronted with the worst of yourself. But friends, his mercy is greater than your worst moments. His mercy is greater than the worst parts of your soul. This is exacerbated by a culture that tells us over and over again that we as human beings are essentially good. That we can find it within ourselves to transcend our own brokenness if we just dig deep. Friends, you hear me say this over and over again. But humanity won't find its hope from within. It can only find a hope for the future in the person of Christ Jesus. Period. I keep saying it because we're at war with a real enemy who has convinced the Western world that we can build the Tower of Babel again. That we can achieve utopia apart from the presence of God. If we just all come together and transcend the worst parts of the human condition. But friends, your deepest needs for healing in the darkest places of your soul will only be fully realized in the merciful work of Jesus. It'll only be found in the merciful work of Jesus. His mercy is greater than your worst moment. David goes on and we, and we see this beautiful, hope-filled switch in the language that he uses. In verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Notice the source of that cleansing. It doesn't come from within. David understands that the overflow of what was within led him to this place of brokenness and cover up and shame. Also notice that in this moment, David invites the work of God into his life. This is the work of grace. Grace is, in part, the extension of oneself for the benefit of one who doesn't deserve it. Here David is convinced that God is extending himself, that God is leaning into his brokenness to bring healing. If mercy is the withholding of what we do deserve, then grace is the extension and giving of what we don't. This is the biblical worldview at work. Repentance is the crying out for mercy. But more than that, it's a declaration that you're going to change your patterns. You're going to walk away and expel those things from your life. And repentance becomes a prerequisite to knowing mercy, but also to knowing grace. Because grace comes in in that moment. And he begins to give you the strength and the ability that you don't have to do what needs to be done to change those patterns and to change those ways and to expel those things from your living and from your relationship and from your life. Mercy is greater than your worst moment, but his grace is the source of your best. 
His grace is the source of your best. I've had those moments in my life where I've messed up big time. Moments where shame took over and started a narrative in my head, started telling me a story that I didn't deserve another shot. It told me the story that I was too far beyond repair, that God didn't love me. Shame told me the story that I would be rejected by my family and my friends and my peers and my church and my God if it ever came to light. Shame has this way of isolating us, of cutting us off from those who love us most. Shame is one of the single most destructive realities of the human condition. Shame will kill you straight up. It'll destroy your life. But every time I had to say no to shame and yes to his mercy and grace, I experienced the arms of a loving God. The healing of my closest relationships and the support of the mature among community of faith. The very essence of the work of Jesus is about tearing down shame and telling us a different story. That God loves you, even in your worst moments. That his mercy is enough for you, even in your worst moments. That his grace can still bring the best out of you. His mercy is waiting on the other side of repentance. And on the other side of that is his grace waiting for you to strengthen you in your weakness to do what it takes to start looking more and more like Jesus every day. His mercy is greater than your worst moments. And his grace is the source of your best. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in your right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Friends, so often it's those who walk with a limp that have the most impact. It's those that walk with a limp. David speaks to this in verse 13. Then, after you create in me a new heart, after your grace meets me where I am, after your mercy covers over me, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I am amazed at how God has taken the worst moments of my life and has used them, has redeemed them to begin to tell the story of his mercy and his grace. Your past doesn't disqualify you. In fact, the revelation of mercy and grace through the work of Jesus in the worst moments of your life are often the very platform that he gives you to speak life into your friends and your neighbors and those that you come in contact with. The worst moments of your life become the redeemed moments 
that bring life to others. Because you've been gifted a revelation of the love and forgiveness and mercy and grace of Christ. Verse 19 says, then will you delight in right sacrifices? After I become broken and contrite before you, then you'll begin to delight in right sacrifices. Friends, I'm on a journey personally of renewal. I hope you are too. But renewal just won't happen in my life or in yours until we are deeply impacted by the power of sin. Unless we are confronted by the sin of our own souls and we bring that to Christ and we experience his mercy and we invite his grace into our story, renewal just won't happen. create great environments, we can sing great songs, we can hype up a crowd, we can do all of those things, but unless we start looking at the hard realities of the brokenness of our soul and experience a revelation of his mercy and his grace, we won't have renewal in the church. But your past doesn't disqualify you. It becomes a revelation and a testimony and a witness of mercy and grace. If you let it. His mercy is greater than your worst moments. But his grace is the source of your best. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And I've asked the worship team if they would sing an old song that has its foundations in Psalm 51. And as a community of faith, we're going to sing this together. And I hope that you would take a moment and a time in this moment to sing it as your prayer. To sing it as your heart cry. To invite the spirit of truth into this moment because he's here and we're about to acknowledge that but I believe God has some has some deep healing for some of you here today and it's okay some, some of you maybe you're not ready to take this step and God's going to keep walking that journey with you he's going to keep pursuing you He's going to keep chasing after you because he loves you so desperately. There's a few people that I want to speak to, and I believe the Holy Spirit is going to stir something in your hearts. There's those of you, you're believers, you love Jesus. You love Jesus, and you're hungry to know him more. But the discipline... just being vulnerable
comfortable before him has kind of left your rhythms. You know, you pray and you, you pray for your food and you pray with your kids at night or you pray for your grandkid. You, you do some of the things, but, but the discipline of just being in the presence of God and just say, God, just search me. That, that desperation of that first love, that moment you came to Jesus and all you wanted to do was know him and to remove everything out of the way, just everything out of the way. And life just gets going and busyness happens and those rhythms and those routines leave us. And there's seasons and moments like this where God reminds us to return to that rhythm of just being in his presence. Saying, Holy Spirit, search me. Search me. If there's any sinful way in me, confront me with it. Confront me with it. Hold up a mirror that I might see it. And in that moment, we don't hang our heads in shame. Not in the presence of Jesus. In that moment, like David, we cry out for his mercy. And he extends it. And following that moment, we cry out for his grace. And he freely gives it. And day after day, we become renewed in the spirit. Day after day, we begin to look less like us and more like him. But the, perhaps there's also those you're exploring faith with us. Maybe you've been on a journey yourself just personally. And I don't know what brings you here. But I do know one thing. The spirit of truth has brought you here. Because he loves you. And maybe you're here and you've been exploring faith. And, and you would say today, you know what? I need that moment of just saying yes to Jesus. And I, I, I recognize my brokenness. And I need a savior. Like so many of us in this room, we've all come to that moment of recognizing the reality of this world, recognizing the reality of our humanity, and recognizing the reality of who God is. He's a good God. And in this moment, you would say, Lucas, I, I want to accept the work of Christ. I want to accept that mercy and that grace and that forgiveness into my life going to ask you to throw your hand up. Just be brave. Be courageous. We're for you here. We're for you. This will be your first time saying yes to Christ. Thank you. Thank you for your courage. Anybody else? Amen. Can I just pray a prayer with you? And hopefully this reflects what, what God is doing in your heart right now. Can we pray this together as family? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your son, Jesus, that lived a perfect and sinless life because we couldn't. And he sacrificed that life and rose again on the third day, giving us life. Lord, I accept that life into my heart. 
I accept your mercy over my sin. And I accept your grace to live differently from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.